These are high level relational skills we're talking about. Sometimes I finish a whole conversation like this and the host will say, cool, these are all great skills to keep in your pocket in case of emergency. And I'm like, you have not been listening. The time to practice these sorts of emotional, relational communication skills are before you need them. It sounds like many people in your life make a daily practice of listening, of knowing their own boundaries, of offering support in really skillful ways. They didn't just learn that when your mom died. That wasn't new for them. So we want to practice this stuff on smaller daily events so that in the event of an emergency, these skills are not new. Many people feel helpless in the face of somebody else's pain. What do we do with feeling helpless? We apply skills and skills need to be practiced. As loyal listeners know, I experienced a tragedy several months ago. My healthy, active 69-year-old mother died suddenly an abnormal blood vessel, which she was born with but didn't know she had, burst in her brain. I lost my grandparents long ago, but losing my mother was by far my most profound experience with grief. So for the first time, I found myself on the receiving end of attempts to acknowledge my own deep state of grief. And some attempts, which you'll hear in today's conversation, made me feel supported. Other attempts, which you'll also hear, not so much. I also went to some grief support groups with my father and was really shocked by what I discovered. It was like this hidden underworld of grief. People who lost someone six months ago or six years ago, they're all in pain. They're all struggling to feel supported by friends and coworkers and family and made me realize how poorly I myself had handled other people's grief, which is okay. Grief is by definition impossible, but we can always do better. So if we're going to love our work, We have to be kind to one another. And part of being kind is supporting others when they're hurting. Megan Devine is author of It's Okay That You're Not Okay and runs the Writing Your Grief workshop. It wasn't until Megan, a therapist, experienced grief herself that she discovered how we as a culture utterly fail to support the grieving. And we hope we can make that better with today's conversation. You will learn what are the top things to never say when trying to support the grieving. Now that list could obviously be impossibly long, so Megan is going to share with us a quick shortcut. And you may have heard of five stages of grief. I'm not going to bother listing them because it turns out these stages are really horribly misunderstood. So learn why thinking of grief according to stages just makes things worse. And the number one thing that's broken about how we respond to grief is that we treat it like it's a problem to be fixed. And there's one simple mindset shift that can help us do better. Chances are you've had grieving people in your life. If you haven't, you most certainly will. Now is the time to build these skills. So let's get started. Here's Megan Devine. I'm here with Megan Devine, author of It's Okay That You're Not Okay. Uh, Welcome to the show, Megan. Thanks for having me. As my loyal listeners know, I I lost my mother back in July and I had, uh, I guess I say, the misfortune of needing to read your book. It was very helpful for myself and for my father. And one thing that happened in the course of that was I went to some grief support groups with my father and I just discovered this world that I had never seen before of all these people who 
are in so much pain and you know maybe they lost someone 10 years ago and they all I kept hearing over and over again there's nobody understands uh, nobody at work wants to hear it friends don't want to hear it and it was surprising to me because in my own you know process of of dealing with this I've had to tell myself you know this is a part of life people that you love die and so this is something that everybody experiences in some form or another at some point. So it made me think like, well, how can this be possible that there's so many people out there who feel like nobody wants to hear it, nobody wants to, nobody understands. And and, and I felt that bit myself. Now that's maybe too big of a question to answer right off the bat, but maybe we can get somewhere with that. So if you're willing, can you share how you ended up doing this work that you're doing in, in this world of grief? Sure. I mean, let's, let's go back to what you just shared there. So the, it sounds like your question in there is, was my experience normal? And the answer is yes. The short answer is yes. And, and I think mm-hmm. you actually hit on one of the core issues here. We've got this sort of cultural narrative, psychological narrative, inner narrative that says, wait a minute, death is normal. And it's, and it's a natural thing and it happens all the time. And then there's the other side that says, well, the actual lived reality of grief, it doesn't matter that death happens all the time, right? Because Mm, death doesn't happen to you all the time. And we don't really talk about what it's like to lose people we love. And because of that, that's why you find, as you did in your, your sort of group support experience, so many people saying, nobody wants to hear this. Nobody wants to listen to me. We have such a backlog of unspoken grief because we aren't taught how to talk about it and we aren't taught how to hear it in other people, right? And that dovetails into your second question there, which is how did I get into this? So I've been a psychotherapist a psychotherapist for almost 20 years now. I was in private practice for a long time and my partner died in an accident and when he died, I quit my practice. I said I would never come back into this work ever again. Ha ha. But I, I quit because I, there was no way I could be helpful to anybody else in my, in my situation, in my emotional life, in my personal life. But I came back into this work because, you know, I, I wasn't any stranger to grief. And certainly as a therapist, I was trained in like active listening and all of these things. But, um, the way that I personally was treated and my, and my, my band of fellow widowed, widowed people and people who had lost children. The way that we were really big air quotes supported by friends and family and people with really good intentions was so bad. Not on purpose usually, but you know, when we say things to people like, well, everything happens for a reason, or at least you had them as long as you did. Somebody actually told me the night of Mount's funeral that I was young and pretty and I should find somebody else to marry as soon as possible and get over it. We're just mm-hmm. idiots around, around how we, how we talk about grief and, and how we listen to each other. So even though I swore I would never come back into this work, I know that I, I can speak to this as both a professional and as an insider, right? Having lived this, having experienced this, I know what's broken in the ways that we talk about grief. And if I could make it better for grieving people and the people who want to be supportive friends and family, if I can make it better, then I I kind of had to, right? 
Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned what's broken about the way that we handle grief and we only have so much time, but can you give us kind of the main things that you think are broken about that? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple, right? It doesn't mean it's easy. We could, I could totally geek out for hours on this one, but if you think about the ways that we respond to pain of any kind in Western culture, certainly in some other cultures, but we'll focus on this one for now. The way that we respond to pain of any kind is buck up, get over it. Other people have it worse than you do. One of the things we also do is sort of hijack somebody else's pain. If somebody says, you know, I'm, I'm really sad, like my, I'm stressed out, my dog is really sick. And they say, oh, my dog died when I was four, right? We, this kind mm-hmm. of goes back to that backlogs of unspoken grief, right? We hear somebody else's grief and we jump right in with our own. So the, the ways that we come to pain in this culture, that is where, that's where the chasm is. That's where the break is. We have this idea that grief is a problem to be solved, that your main task when you're in pain is to get over it as soon as possible and go back to quote unquote normal. Normal meaning that you don't disrupt the people around you with your feelings, that you stop talking about your person, that you basically go back to who you used to be. And, you know, because we don't talk about the actual realities of grief, it's not like, it's not like it's your fault if you don't know how to support somebody who's grieving or if you don't know what's normal in your own grief. It's not your fault because we don't talk about it. Right. And it's weird mm-hmm. that like here, you know, grief is this thing that is going to affect everybody in some way at least once in their lives, probably way more than that, either as the the person grieving or the person trying to be a good friend, it's going to affect everybody. What a weird thing that we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And what that says to me, you know, when you've got this gigantic foundational thing that affects everybody and yet nobody talks about it, what that says to me as a cultural anthropologist, as a researcher, as a therapist is, this is a really scary topic. We only avoid things that are scary. Right. And so yeah. if we've got this giant issue that affects everybody, but nobody's talking about it, that says to me, we are terrified of grief. Yeah. As you said, it is scary. And uh, I can, I mean, I could think back to all these times when maybe somebody else was grieving and I didn't really get it. And I s- said the wrong thing sometimes. I, and I didn't recognize it at the time, but now I, I recognize it and it makes me realize there's just sort of this dilemma here where you feel like you're walking on eggshells when you're dealing with somebody in grief and when other people are dealing with you while you're in grief, you 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 can sense that they feel like that too, that they might say the wrong thing and actually make things worse. So in in, in one way, I'm kind of, some of the things I, I said myself or things that I heard from people, I'm kind of like... Yeah, that wasn't the really the right thing to say, but also it's it's hard to it is such a difficult topic to to handle. So I I feel a little bit of a a dilemma there in in empathizing with people who are dealing with somebody who's who's grieving. How do you untangle that? Yeah, so I, I, you hit on some really core things here. We feel helpless in the face of somebody else's grief because we, we don't know what to do. We've got um, this idea that's certainly reinforced by media, by psychology, that your job as a support person is to help somebody not feel their feelings anymore. You're, you're supposed to help them not grieve anymore. You're supposed to help them get over it. Well, mm-hmm. that can't happen. 
right? So we've got this sort of directive as we're talking about the helper person now, the support person now. We have this directive that your job is to make your person happy again. Well, that's not possible. You can't cheer somebody up out of their grief. It just doesn't work that way. And I I think some part of us knows that. And so we've got this like idea in our head, my job is to make you happy again. And somewhere else in our heart or in our bodies, we know that that's not possible. And so the dissonance between those two things makes us feel really helpless and nobody likes to feel helpless, right? So Mm -hmm. we say all sorts of not helpful things out of that sense of helplessness. And what I often say to support people is your main job is to learn to tolerate your own helplessness. Now that seems like a strange thing to say, but when you see somebody in pain, it's a normal human reaction to make them want to feel better. I don't want you to stop having that impulse. I just want you to think about what can I do or say that actually um, serves that desire to, to be of support, to be of help to this person, because it's not cheer up. You had them as long as you did, right? Mm-hmm. If we switch our ideas about what it means to be truly supportive away from, I need to fix my friend's grief and instead think about how can I come up alongside them? How can I come up underneath them and give them a place to a soft place to land? Or how can I take over some things in their life? You know, take the trash out, walk the dog, pick the kids up from daycare, whatever, so that all they have to do is grieve, right? I think it becomes a lot easier to figure out how to be a supportive friend or ally when you understand that your job is not to fix anything, but to companion it. One of the other things that you said was sort of, looking back at the ways that you've tried to support people before now as a grieving person yourself and sort of cringing, like cringing at former self, like, yeah. oh my gosh, I can't believe uh, you said those things. That That's normal. That is human. I do this for a living. I've been doing this for 11 years now. I say stupid stuff, right? And I have to go back and like, okay, I'm technically the pro at this and I just completely screwed that up. I'm so sorry. Can I start over? right? We are going to make mistakes. One of the best things you can say to a grieving person is, I have no idea how to say this or how to support you. And I feel incredibly awkward and stupid, but I love you enough that I'm going to show up anyway. Right? Hmm. How cool is that? That is good. That is really, really cool. And you know, you can, you know, again, because we don't often talk about grief in our culture, we don't see we don't see appropriate support role modeled in books or in in uh, movies. If you think about movies that have a grief storyline, they're all about like the grumpy old widower who just needs to let joy into his life again. Like we don't see the actual reality of what we're about supposed Schmidt. to do, right? So again, it's not your fault if you don't know how to do this. And sometimes we hear that a lot from from people who are currently grieving. They're like, oh man, now I'm on the receiving end of all of these things that I have said all the time right? And there's that horror and there's also outrage, right? Like how dare people talk to me this way? Like this is... So again, it's like, yep, until you know better, you, you know, you didn't know better. And now you can look ahead and be like, oh, wow, now I have this experience. And it sort of turns a light on in a part of the Mm -hmm. world that you didn't know existed. I mean, this is one of these places where as, as miserly as it sounds, it, it seems like it would be nice to have kind of what's the top list of things to not say yeah to a grieving person. I don't think that's miserly. I think, I mean, when we are faced with that feeling of helplessness, what helps when you're feeling overwhelmed or helpless? Strategy, 
right? Mm -hmm. A list of actions. Awesome. Again, remember that when we take grief out of that idea that it's a problem to be solved, that your job as a support person is to fix things for your person. When we change that into how can I best companion them? How can I best listen? Then a whole world of things open up. So if you, if you're thinking like yours, you know, if you're overthinking things like I always do and you're like, okay, I'm in the car on the way over to my friend who just sent me a text that told me she just miscarried. Like, what am I going to do? Right. I need to remind myself that my job is not to fix this. My job is to support and companion. Okay. So I am not going to say things like everything happens for a reason. You can try again, right? If somebody's lost a child, you can always mm-hmm. try again. Anything that, you know, in my book, I talk about the second half of the sentence. There, there's an implied ghost sentence. When you say something like, everything happens for a reason, or your person would want you to be happy. If you can add, so stop feeling so sad to the end mm. of what you're thinking of saying, it is the wrong thing to say, right? We could come up with 9,000 phrases of things you should not ever say to somebody, but that's not going to be useful. If you can add to whatever you're thinking, of saying in that moment, if you can add that second half of the sentence and it makes sense, something, 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 so stop feeling so bad, then it is the wrong thing to say, mm-hmm. right? Again, we want to think about letting your grieving person lead. You can say things like, I have no idea how to support you. Here are some ideas I have. Would any of these work? Right? Right. As opposed to the... I mean, also, you know, not quite so bad, but, but also not necessarily helpful of how can I help? Yeah, that one's, that one's tricky. We, we also have this idea in this culture that, that nobody likes to be sort of intruded on and we want to, you know, I'm not going to help you unless you ask for help, which is a weird thing because we're really addicted to giving unsolicited advice. So it's a weird thing when somebody is grieving or they're ill right? Asking them to come up with things that you can do to help them is unfair, right? This is also Mm -hmm. like asking um, a person of color to educate a white person on racism, right? Not their job. So (laughs) I always bring that in when I can. Uh, it's, It's very much the same thing. So for a grieving person or somebody who's experiencing an illness, like it's tempting to say, let me know if you need anything, but let's, let's talk about the reality of this. In order to do that, I, as a grieving person, have to first know what I need and then figure out from my list of support people who might be able to do the thing that I need. And then I have to overcome my aversion to asking for help, which everyone has. And then I need to make that call. That doesn't often happen in the best of times. Think about the last time life was going on pretty normal, but you could use some help with a couple of errands or something around the house. When was the last time you called one of your friends and said, I could use some help um, making sure that my mm-hmm. picture frames are straight? Never, yeah. right? So we, we got to come back to being human and what's actually going to happen under the best of circumstances. Most of us rarely reach out directly with a specific task for which we could use help. So asking somebody who is grieving or ill, or overwhelmed with life circumstances to come up with what needs to happen and make that call, never going to happen. Never going to happen. And I can think of probably one of the best responses that I got from a friend was somebody who said, hey, here is a list of things I can do for you. I can 
order meals to your father's house it was was one of those things. It was like a, a list of things. She she just didn't ask me, you know, can I help with something? She just yeah. said, "Hey, if I can support you, here's here's some specific things that I can do." And that was fantastic. That's I beautiful. That so much. It's beautiful. Concrete, tangible actions that you can offer and don't offer anything for which you cannot follow through, right? Somebody says, mm-hmm. call me if you need anything. Well, let's say that our grieving person actually gets themselves together and asks and the person's like, oh, I can't really do that. Or I'm really yeah. busy today, right? So we just completely missed each other. So offering concrete, tangible things that you are actually willing and able to deliver is great. It's a win-win for everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So concrete things, if you can come up with a list of, I mean, it might be, are there any specific things that people typically might need that sure. we just don't think of? Yeah. Well, I, I think this is one of those situations where you have to lean on your knowledge of your friend, right? Yeah. That might mean, you know, I know that there are certain things, you know, living in the city, you have to get your recycling out. Or, you know, if if I needed help, people would know that I have a young dog who needs a lot of exercise. So they would offer to like, I'm going to come take the dog for a walk at noon tomorrow. Does that time work for you? Mm-hmm. Right. So think about recurring life tasks, the the machinery of daily life. Those are great places to offer concrete assistance because the world doesn't stop when your person dies. Right. Mm-hmm. And that that is a huge rift that opens up. You know, your your person died and the sun still comes up and the bills still need to be paid and the dishes still need to be done. Right. So mm-hmm. Knowing, knowing the sort of rhythm of daily life, those are pretty consistent things that you can offer. You can offer, you know, doing the dishes or mowing the lawn or recycling and trash always seems to be my favorite one because they, they sort of pile up. The only mm-hmm. thing that I do want to caution about is to not do anything that is irreversible without checking with the person first. Oh, what nice. I mean by that is laundry, clutter, and dishes. This is something that most people would not think about. So I, I try to stress this every time I every time I do an interview or or speak. Try not to do anything that's irreversible without checking with the person first. Here's an example. I was just going through comments on our Instagram, and somebody commented that um, a very quote unquote helpful person did laundry the day that her daughter died. Did laundry for her the day that her daughter died. Well. Those clothes that were in the laundry basket were the last thing that smelled like her daughter. And so this helpful friend came in and did all of the laundry thinking they were doing this great supportive thing, but they destroyed evidence that her daughter had been there. Does that make sense? If you oh, think absolutely. I'm cleaning up the clutter and I, I do, I pick up this coffee cup that's sitting on this table and I wash it. Well, maybe my husband was drinking that cup of coffee when he had a heart attack. And I need that to remember that he was here and that he lived, right? Mm-hmm. These are things that we don't expect support people to, to think of on their own, which is why I talk about it, right? So the, the rule here is don't do anything irreversible without checking with the person first. What looks like a pile of clutter to you might be evidence that the person was here at all. Right. And you mentioned earlier, you know, sharing your similar experience as as a as a way to as a way that may not be the right thing to say. I, I can 
I can say that as I was going through this, I definitely felt attracted to the friends of mine who had experienced something similar. And th- those who did share that with me or, or mentioned that they had experienced something similar, I I found it helpful. But I can yeah. see how there can be ways of doing that that aren't helpful. Yes. Can you help draw the distinction Absolutely. There? This is about right timing, right? So if if you and I are in line at a coffee shop, and we kind of casually know each other and you ask me how my day is. And I say, it's actually not that great. My sister uh, just died over the weekend. That is not the time for you to say, oh, my sister died or my best friend's sister's mother's sister died, right? Mm. And that is Mm -hmm. what we do, right? Again, that impulse is not wrong. That impulse is human. Because it's the associative we, machine, you know. It's, it's the associative machine, exactly. We look for similarities. So again, I want us to look at, don't silence that impulse, slow down that impulse. Oh, that is my impulse to want to connect with this person. That is a beautiful thing. What is the best way that I might connect with this person right now? 99% of the time, it is not by sharing my own damn story, right? A good response to that might be, I'm so sorry to hear that. What's your sister's name? We want to center the person speaking is my point here. We always want to center the Mm -hmm. person speaking. Now, you brought up a really good point. Very often we gravitate towards those who have had similar losses because we're, we're, again, the associative machinery at work here. We want to be like, oh my God, I need to know what, I need need help here. Like I need need a roadmap. I need to know what's happened. This also comes down to the element of, of choice and uh, personal sovereignty, which is which is a, a big bandwagon for me. Personal sovereignty means um, the grieving person gets to choose. It's okay to say like, um, I know your sister died a couple of years ago. My sister just died. Like, I don't know what to do next. Right? That is mm-hmm. me as the grieving person requesting companionship by somebody who has traveled similar territory. Now, what if, what if your grieving person doesn't know that you've shared a similar loss? So there are elegant ways to share that information, right? So never in line at a coffee shop. I don't think that's ever an appropriate place. Uh, but you can say things like, I'm so sorry to hear that. My experience is nothing like yours, but I have lost a sibling and I am perfectly happy to talk with you about that. If you're interested, you let me know. Mm-hmm. Right. That brings to mind, actually, yeah, one of the other maybe best things that I heard from from somebody else was my experience was was not the same as yours. Mm-hmm. I experienced this. <laughs> if you need to do this, that, the other thing, I'm here to support you. Beautiful. You have some yeah. really skilled people in your life, right? Like I think <laughs> after we couple. talk, you should send them a text and be like, y'all rock because they did a really good job. And these yeah. are high level relational skills we're talking about. I'm going to go back to something we were discussing earlier about like, shouldn't you just tell people what you need? Well, yes, everyone should tell other people what they need, but we don't do that as daily practice, right? Like even in our normal non-grieving lives and knowing how to share personal information skillfully is again, that's ninja level. And, and one of the things that I often say to people, you know, sometimes I, I finish a whole conversation like this and the host will say, cool, these are all great skills to keep in your pocket in case of emergency. And I'm like, you have not been listening, right? Because the the time to practice these sorts of emotional, relational communication skills 
are before you need them, right? It sounds like many people in your life make a daily practice of listening, of knowing their own boundaries, of offering support in really skillful ways. They didn't just learn that when your mom died. Right. That wasn't new for them, right? So we want to practice this stuff on smaller daily events so that in the event of an emergency, these skills are not new. It's a great idea just in general to practice with people you know and trust things like, I'm doing this experiment with asking more directly for stuff that I need. Are you willing to do this experiment with me? Great, right? And then we practice. Mm -hmm. These are skills that you can practice. And and we kind of loop back to where we started in the beginning. Many people feel helpless in the face of somebody else's pain. What do we do with feeling helpless? We apply skills and skills need to be practiced. Yeah. That's very interesting. I mean, especially if this is a thing that you know that you will experience at some point in your life, if you have not already, Mm -hmm. the time to prepare yourself for that would be before it happens. Yeah. And we can also talk about, you know, we, we started out talking about why is our culture so screwed up around grief? And I said, it's because we're scared of it. Well, it, the way that we survive grief of any kind is through community. Most people try to avoid grief. Like I've actually had, it's happened to me and it's happened to many people I know in those first days after, especially a, a sort of shocking accidental odd Mm -hmm. loss. It's like you have the plague and people avoid you. People would cross the street rather than talk to me or be near me. And that's happened actually to a lot of grieving people that I know where we're so paralyzed that we paralyzed in the face of their loss that we, that we cross the street to avoid it. And what happens there is that again, it's that, that very human connection, right? Our minds and our hearts recognize ourselves in somebody else's loss. And we think, crap, that could be me really easily. And that is a terrifying feeling. Mm -hmm. And so what we normally do is we try to cheer the person up or we cross the street to avoid them or we tell them everything happens for a reason. And what we're really doing is managing our own anxiety that this could be us. So honestly, the, the best way to respond to that kind of anxiety in yourself is like, yeah, life is fragile and unpredictable and tenuous and you cannot fully protect yourself from loss. What you can do is grow and nurture communities that can withstand withstand your brokenness, that mm-hmm. can come up underneath you and alongside you should life go sideways in such a way, right? You can just be merely terrified of terrible things happening or you can be terrified and grow communities that could support you. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, you know, avoiding friends or acquaintances who who might be grieving, it makes me think of something that I noticed as I was going through this of, you know, maybe I would be in a, a ride share and the ride share driver's like, oh, do you have any fun plans for the weekend? Mm. Like, and I, my, I, I want to, I want to say, well, well, if I'm going to be honest, I'm going to unplug my mother from life support tomorrow. Yeah. But I realized like, okay, I probably shouldn't say that. Um, yeah, and it, it just made me realize that there's just this kind of cultural veneer of of cordiality or niceness that sometimes makes it more difficult to be real. 
Yeah, it's it's complex, right? I mean, you've you've got, you know, when you are going through something like that, there is no such thing as an innocent question. Right? How many yeah. kids do you have? Got any fun plans for the weekend? Huh. Right? Yeah. Nothing is an innocent question. And then you're faced with choices, right? Do you tell the truth? Well, if you take that path down the decision tree, then it's either a really awkward ride share, right? Where there's a really awkward yeah. silence because nobody says anything after you just shared that piece. Get extremely lucky. <laughs> or, right, I mean, you, have, you think all these thoughts in a second, right? Like I could, I could tell the truth here and then we could either have a really awkward silent ride or they could start telling me about their experience or they could start asking me really personal questions or they could have a really skilled response, which is something like, that sounds really impossible. Do you mm. want to tell me about it or would you rather change the subject? Right. That would be like, that would be like unicorn rideshare right there. So there's that. Or, you know, if you're like, I don't have the bandwidth to handle the potential of any of those responses right now, you make the really weird decision to lie. Right. Which right. is to hold up the social veneer. And when somebody says, have any big plans this weekend in your head, you're going, I plan to unplug my mother from life support, but your mouth says, not really. How about you? And then there's that internal horror in yourself. Like you just lied about your mom, right? I mean, we're screwed. Mm -hmm. There is no proper answer on that one. Right. Yeah. And you were, you were talking about, I guess the, just things that are good to say or things that are not so good to mm -hmm. say when you're dealing with a grieving person. I mean, I can think of, and I hate to throw anybody under the bus because I really honestly appreciate anybody acknowledging uh, it, but you know, I got an email check in from somebody who's actually is whose profession is human interaction, mm -hmm. and you know, like, hey, just seeing how you're doing, and like, well, I actually, my mom passed away. You know, I, it's really tough supporting my dad through it or whatever. And then he's sort of like, well, at least you get a support family. That's an honor, isn't it? And like, well, mm -hmm. <laughs> this 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 sort of temptation, which I'm been guilty of myself in the past and will probably be guilty of in the future to look for the silver lining yes. to end each conversation on an up note, mm -hmm. which is, it's funny because people in human dynamics or human interaction teach these things. Yes. <laughs> and it doesn't really help, does it? it? It doesn't. And everybody is swimming in the same cultural sea, right? therapists are some of the worst support people inside grief. Mm, really? I say that as a therapist. Well, because of many of the things that we've been talking about, right? We have a bedrock foundational idea that grief is a problem to be solved. Sure, feel it, but there is a very finite window in which it is okay to feel things. And then you have to move on and progress. When somebody, um, as you said, it's, it's their, you know, profession, profession to be a good communicator or human interaction. It's like, it doesn't mean they're good at this. In fact, they might be even worse at it because that idea that there is a bright side to everything that you have to look on the, on the bright side. I and mean, there's a whole section, an entire section, several chapters, um, in my book about like how, how long have we had that kind of pain avoidance and pain aversion, like a really long time. And you know that what that response says to me from that person is one, they are very uncomfortable with pain. They might have excellent yeah. communication skills in other areas of life, but they are deeply, deeply uncomfortable with pain. And 
they flail inside their helplessness and they go back to what is familiar. Hmm. What have I been trained to do? I've been trained to look on the bright side. You know what the other thing that that might say, and we'll just like analyze that person. I don't even know. (laughs) The other thing is that person has a lot of pain that never got heard, that was never valued or validated. And maybe they went through something and they didn't have any support. And you saying, it's really hard for me to support my dad right now. That touched something in them. And they said, ow, (laughs) Mm. right? They don't know they said, ow, but I heard it. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I, I know I'm feeling uh, empathy for that person. Yeah. And empathy is a really interesting thing here. This, this is like, I'm all about the gray area and let's make it a little bit more clear. One of the things that happens very often. So if, if you're my grieving person um, and I say something that doesn't land well with you, I probably have good intentions. Sometimes people are jerks, but let's not go there. I have really good intentions and I say something to you that isn't helpful and you tell me that. You say, actually, that's not a helpful thing to say right now. Like just because my mom was 117 doesn't mean I'm not sad, right? And I'm going to come back with, well, don't be so sensitive. I had good intentions and you need to have some empathy for how hard it is to be supportive, right? Mm. Ah, This whole like black and white dichotomy here that we are, that we have to have empathy for people who screw up. And that somehow empathy is code for, don't tell me to change my behavior. Mm-hmm. How dare you make me uncomfortable? I was trying, right? No, right? There there are not only two answers here. Like, it's funny. I get actually less hate mail after the book came out than I did before the book came out, but I still do get hate mail. And the the most of the hate mail that I get is, how dare you be so negative? People have really good intentions and you need to listen for the message behind their words. Well, garbage. That is an excuse for the person with the quote unquote good intentions to not do the uncomfortable work of looking at what they said. If you truly intend to be supportive to somebody you care about, you need to be willing to feel uncomfortable when they tell you that what you said isn't helpful. Mm, So if I say something to you and I'm trying to support you and you come back and you say, actually, that's not very helpful. My job is to say, I'm sorry to hear that. That was not my intention. Let me try that again. Or is there something that would feel more helpful? Can you, is there something, is there something I could say that would feel more helpful? Right. It is your job as the support person to be uncomfortable. You're not going to get it right. That's fine. You're supposed to stumble. Nobody's an expert in this. Even the experts, me, I'm not perfect at this. Right. What I am good at is being willing to hear that what I'm saying is not helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And as you mentioned, even the experts not really knowing, it reminds me of recently when I was buying a sympathy card for somebody else. I kid you not, there were like five sympathy cards that all said the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. They all said, what's loved is never lost. <laughs> and thinking like, well, I, I that's kind of true, but Sympathy card, not the right time. It's not even that. accurate. That's not even accurate. Your person is dead, right? Yeah. The love is still there. Yes, absolutely. Sure. But there, there's this, nope, nope, they're not. There's one, there's a poem. I should know who it is, but there's a poem, a very popular poem in the grief world about how like death is nothing at all. I am just in the next room. No, you are not, right? Mm-hmm. 
this rampant, rabid drive to erase pain seriously screws up so many things, right? Your person is not in the next room. They are dead, right? Mm -hmm. When we say things like that, because we think we're being helpful because we're trying to soften the blow, we are missing the person's lived reality. Let me give you an example here. So I have a lot of folks in my, in my readership and in my communities whose uh, spouse or parent or co-parent died, right? When they had young children and those things like death is nothing at all. I am just in the next room. Like, well, if you're just in the next room, could you take the dog out? Like I have, we have two children and both of them have parent night on the same night. And I can't be in two places in once. If you're just in the next room or you're still quote all around me, then go to one of the parent nights. And I sound really pissy when I say that because it enrages me when we use language like that. I honestly, I say this as a former poet, like I am a writer. I love poetic language and there is a right place and a right time for it. And the way that we deploy poetry as a weapon against grieving person, people to make them not feel so bad, like that is Mm. dissing poetry, man. We are so committed to ignoring and dismissing each other's pain. We think we are doing a good job at it and we are not. And as you said, there's a, there's a right time and a right place for that, right? And some of the other hate mail I get is from communities of faith or for people of faith who are like, yes, but we must lean on God, whoever God is in this situation. And I'm like, yep, if that is what the person chooses, Right. We want to follow the grieving person's lead. If they are saying things like, I am really leaning on my faith right now to get me through this, a great question back is, tell me what that looks like for you, right? Or I, I have a really hard time believing in a, in a God who is good in the face of your, the accident your sister was in. How do you find faith in that? Right. Mm-hmm. So we want to lead with curiosity. Anytime we do something that is prescriptive, here is an answer for you. Here is this sympathy card full of mis- misdirected poetry. I mean, we're asking a lot of a sympathy card, but, but the, the, the through line here is our avoidance of grief and pain has so many repercussions and it's, it's saturated in our culture from our sympathy cards to our after school specials, to our movies, to our pop psychology, to it is everywhere. And it's not just affecting the way that we deal with people grieving a death, but it's also affecting the, you know, folks with chronic or recurrent illness. It's affecting people in the disability community. It's affecting the way that we listen to survivors of sexual assault and of systemic racism and uh, misogyny. Like I could go on a total tear about this stuff, but the way that we erase other people's pain is pervasive and problematic. And it can seem really overwhelming when we talk about it like this, like we're just basically, we're just screwed. We have no idea how to do this. Well, that is the starting point to be able to say the things that I have learned about responding to any kind of pain in the world are wrong. Ouch. What can I do to start paying attention differently and playing with my responses? This is a social experiment. How do I listen to pain? And what might I change? How might I do it differently and see what happens? Yeah. 
Yeah. And you mentioned, I guess I want to touch on the, the popularly known, I, I think, is it four stages of grief five, that yes. people seem there's to a, think there's exist? There's the solid one is five, and then there's another one floating around that's seven. Yeah. Yeah. And as you're saying, that, that's something that therapists bestow upon people. And I, it sounds like the, the mission of those, or, or the intention of those, is to erase people's pain. The effect of those is to erase people's pain. Ah. The intention of those, the the sort of the history of the five stages of grief is kind of fascinating if you geek out on that stuff. But Elizabeth Kubler-Ross created those stages as she was working with dying people, not grieving people, dying mm. people, people with a terminal diagnosis. And she wrote them as a as a roadmap of sorts, right? To say, these are some things you might experience. And because we don't talk about death and dying, you might not get you might, people might not bring these up for you. So I'm going to do it. Right. She did it as a, as an act of love and an act of service to give the smallest bit of a roadmap into somebody facing a really overwhelming, very rapidly approaching end of life. That is not how her tools were used. Her use, her tools were taken and applied to grieving people and then um, sort of cast in, in concrete right? Casting concrete to be like, these are the stages you will go through. And if you do not go through them in order, in the proper time, you are failing at grief. Well, you, right? (laughs) No human process works like that. That was not her intention, but that was the effect. And unfortunately, like this, this kind of goes back to um, where we started in the beginning that grief is, grief is really overwhelming. It can be really overwhelming and scary in ourselves and in in each other. And so, when things feel scary, we reach for um, a very solid, logical, reasonable thing that we can measure. You in within a model like the stages of grief and the current complicated grief medicalized medical world way of talking about grief currently, there are certain things that you can do which you can pass or you can fail. And that makes grief feel very tidy and manageable and measurable. I can look at you and say, oh, you're in the anger phase, right? Or or, no, you're in denial. We can otherize somebody using those tools that were Mm -hmm. originally meant as a service, right? So anytime, you know, five stages of grief is one of the, one of the one that most people know, but anytime we try to apply a system, a pass fail measurement system to grief itself, we are doing it wrong, right? That doesn't mean that there aren't markers or roadmaps. Again, with this binary thinking, right? Very often when I come out and say, you know, stages of grief is not a good model, complicated grief overly pathologizes a natural human experience. People are like, oh, so we're just out here in the fog bank by ourselves. Like I didn't say that. Binary thinking, quit it, right? Just because there are no stages doesn't mean there isn't a roadmap, right? There Mm -hmm. are things that you can do to help yourself survive, to help other people survive. There are things that you can do to reduce your own suffering as you live through grief, right? Just because there are not stages doesn't mean there are not tools. It's just why we use those things. If we're using something in the service of solving grief, we're doing it wrong. If we're using tools in ourselves or for others to help us survive, to help us lean into the love and support that does still exist, in the same room and in others, then that's better. Yeah. Yeah. 
Megan Devine, the book is It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand. Thank you so much for writing this book yeah. and, and for coming on the show and share with our listeners where else they can find more of you. Yeah. So the website itself is refugeingrief.com. There's a whole history of articles and blog posts and stuff. It's sort of the encyclopedia of grief. At the website, you'll also find the Writing Your Grief course, which is honestly my favorite thing. It's a place for grieving people to come together and share the truth of their own experience in a very welcoming and supportive community. You can find us on Instagram at refugeingrief where you will also see the hashtag perfectly normal campaign where we talk about what is actually normal inside grief. And then on Facebook and Twitter, both at Refuge in Grief. The Writing Your Grief workshop, I, I so wanted to uh, talk about that. We're big fans of, of writing here at Love Your Work, but uh, people will have to go check that out for themselves. Yeah. It's thank an you amazingly so much. special community. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Megan Devine. If you made it this far, you are brave because grief can be a scary topic. So good on you. It is time for the Love Your Work listener showcase. This week, we're sharing the work of Cornelius Van Litt. Cornelius says, For three years, I have been applying cutting-edge computer technology to ancient manuscripts. Sounds interesting. For three years, I have been listening to your podcast. You inspired me to be a creative entrepreneur as a scholar and write a book called Among Digitized Manuscripts, Philology, Codicology, Paleography in a Digital World. It's out now. Well, creative entrepreneur as a scholar, I like that a lot. Academia can be a sort of thankless career path, so I hope that the book does well, Cornelius. You can find Cornelius's work at LWCVL. Dot com. That is LWCVL.com. And if you would like to be featured in the Love Your Work Listener Showcase, just fill out the really short application. It is at kdv.co slash showcase. At the core of being able to love your work is one question. Where does the money come from? Does the work you do make humanity better? Do the products you use help you grow as a person? That's why supporting Love Your Work on Patreon is good for all of us. I can focus on making a great show so you can become a better human. It's an honest exchange, value for value. This show costs hundreds of dollars a month to produce and bring to your ears. I invest my time and creative energy in making it, so I can't keep this show going without your support. Please support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Think of it like a coffee meeting. Is this show worth buying me a coffee a month? Head to patreon.com slash to join. You'll get perks such as early access to ad-free content, masterclasses, or office hours directly with me. That's patreon.com slash Or Overcast users, just tap on the dollar sign. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by our top Patreon supporters, such as Jeffrey Mason. The theme music for Love Your Work is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc. <laughs>